thankful for that. We are, um, we are in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, last, last two weeks we talked about uh, Nehemiah going himself, hearing the call of God on his life about the walls being torn down and, and being burdened by, by God's call in his life. Last week we talked about that in order, if we're going to answer suffering, then it's going to require suffering. Like we can't, you can't tweet about it and fix it. It's going to require somebody going. It's going to require, require somebody sacrificing. So this week, uh, I want to warn you up front. I don't believe in biblical formulas necessary, necessarily. I mean, I think there's some, like you should read your Bible. Amen. I mean, come on. It's so easy to do now. You can get your phone to remind you. You can, you should be in the word of God. That's a good thing. You should be praying. That's a good thing. Amen. We still believe that as a church. The trouble I have with Christian formulas of this is the way you do something every time is that when Jesus came to the earth, he broke most religious formulas. Like if you read the life of Christ, the reason the religious leaders were so upset with him, they're like, you're not supposed to do that. He said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And, and this is how the kingdom of heaven works. And they would get so frustrated with it. If you've raised kids, you kind of understand this concept. Because how, how many of you had your first kid? And what, first of all, let me back up and say, everybody thinks their first kid's the smartest kid ever born. True? We've been doing this long enough. And, and, uh, and your first kid comes out and you're like, oh yeah, my kid, my kid was walking at like three weeks. Really smart really smart, complete sentences. Truth is, they're probably average, like all of us. But we set up these formulas with our first kid, don't we? We set up formulas like, well, you know, our first kid's two or three years old. We kind of got this down. We know we got the routine. We know how it operates. We know how the whole thing works. And then that second or third kid comes along. And all of a sudden, you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, For us, we had two girls, and then we had a boy. And the two girls were very docile, very easy. Uh, Girls don't jump off of couches. Girls don't eat dirt, typically. They were quiet. If If we went to some meeting or something, we could sit them in the corner of the room, and they would just play and be quiet. And then our son was born. And we we all of a sudden thought, we don't know anything about parenting now. We would go camping, remember that? We would go camping when he was younger and our friends were camping beside us. And they said, they said, we knew Carter was up when we heard Chris going, Carter, no, Carter, no, Carter, no, no. Never did that with the girls. The problem with creating these absolute formulas is that God is not bound by our understanding of the formula. And it's in my life, as soon as I created a formula, God always worked outside of it because he's God. And we figure out that he doesn't think like us. And that at best, Paul says, we're looking through a glass dimly. We're trying to understand and conceptualize God who was, who there was no beginning and no end. We're trying to conceptualize how does, how did, how does he do it? 
And so in our Christian daily lives, we're trying to create these formulas so that we know, well, if I do this, 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 and this, then God's always happy with me. I'll always be blessed and and my life will be perfect. But most of you know that's not the way it happens. You've experienced it long enough to know that that's not the way a relationship with Christ works. So we're going to look at Nehemiah's life again, and I'm going to do something I typically don't do. I'm going to read three short portions of scripture and different chapters in Nehemiah to try to paint a picture. I'm not giving you a formula this morning. I'm saying, I'm saying this is, this is a mentality we have to have to see God do miracles in our life. And, and I I believe that we can, we can see this throughout scripture. And so I believe that God still, still heals people. I believe he still provides. I still be, believe he does the miraculous. I believe, I believe when we put our hand to something, he still comes in along and, and turns it out in a way that none of us could imagine. But I believe a church that is looking for the opportunity for God to do a miracle will see God do miracles. Amen? So there's a couple of things we're going to talk about this morning. Stand to your feet. We're going to read from, we're going to start Nehemiah chapter 2 and we're going to, end up in Nehemiah chapter 6. Calm down. I'm not going to read all of it. We're going to start Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. This is something we read last week, but I want to start here to get the idea going. So you'll see it up on the screen. You can see it on the phone, the Bible app. You can see it in the Hope Community Church app. You can see notes there. You can get it in your analog Bible if you brought that. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 18, say amen if you're ready. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The Nehemiah chapter 3 starts out, I'm going to just say this. Nehemiah chapter 3 is all about who actually built the wall. I'm not going to read all of Nehemiah chapter 3 because I can't pronounce the names. But Nehemiah chapter 3 starts out like this. And just to give you an idea, this is how the whole chapter goes. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar built, the son of Imri built. So what happens in chapter 3 is you see section by section by section, Nehemiah is listing the people that built the wall. Everybody following me? Then we're going to skip down to Nehemiah chapter 6. So this is the culmination of all the work. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu. In 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Father, we pray. Lord, we pray that when people look at our lives, they would perceive that you were involved in it, that the miracle happened because you were in us and with us. Lord, I pray that people would not perceive just a talented church, 
but they would perceive your presence. Help us, Lord, to trust you today. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. So just a little recap of where we've been. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He has got a great position uh, in the Persian government. The, the empire of Persia is running the world and, and he's got proximity to the king in, in, in such a way that he's standing beside him. Nehemiah gets word from his brother who's returned from Jerusalem about the condition of the city. And if you look back one book to the book of Ezra, you find out that, that the temple had been rebuilt. This is after the period of exile where, where the Jews were exiled into Babylon for 70 years. This is after that period. And the rebuilding had started to take place, but the, but it hadn't completed yet. The temple had been rebuilt. The, 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 the place where God's presence dwelt had been rebuilt, but the walls around the city of Jerusalem still were in ruin. And in order to have a safe, productive, prosperous city, you can't, you couldn't at that time have walls broken down. So Nehemiah hears this story from his brother and it crushes him. It says he prayed and fasted for days and then he finds himself back in the king's presence and and the king recognizes that Nehemiah is sad. Actually, it, it, the Bible says that it was the first time he had been sad in the king's presence. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, hey, it's a good idea to go to work and have a good attitude every day. Amen? So he's sad for the first time in the presence of the king. The king looks at him and says, hey, what, what, what's going on? What's your problem? You're not sick. There's nothing physically wrong with you. Why are you, this must be something in your heart that's causing you to be sad. What is, what's the problem? And he says, um, just, Hey, listen, I got a, I got a message from my brother that the, man, where my ancestors are buried, where my grandfather's buried. It's still in disarray. It's still torn down. And he's, he's distraught about it. He's so distraught about it, the king asks him, what do you want to do about it? What do you want me to do about it? Nehemiah takes a deep breath and says a quick prayer and says, if it would suit you, king, send me. Send me. Man, if the church could get just that attitude, Lord, there's suffering, and I could do something about it. Nehemiah prepares. The king writes him letters, gets him some support, gives him the authority, the permission, the resources, sends him with some officials, and they horse ride by horseback over 800 miles to, the, to Jerusalem. Before he gets there, he meets a couple of the officials. And we talked about this last week. He meets a couple of the officials there. They're immediately in opposition to him. What do you think you're going to do here? Because we talked about last week, the church cannot relegate the idea of a solution to suffering to political things. Amen? They, the, the politicians of that day were managing the demise of Jerusalem. They were managing the decline, and they were happy with it. It was a, it was a job they would, they would always have. So, so Nehemiah ends up, doesn't tell anybody what he's going to do. He rides into the city. It says he spends three days, three nights in the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't tell anybody. Wakes up in the middle of the night with a couple of the officials, and he rides around the city wall and inspects the, 
the condition of it, and it's not good. He gathers everybody together, gives a pretty good speech. And he says, um, man, the hand of God has been on me to get this far. You got to realize he put me in the right position. He gave me the right resource. He gave me favor with the king. You got to realize the hand of God has been on me to get here. The hand of God has been on me to, to even attempt something like this. And so he gives a, a pretty good vision casting moment. And, 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 and the people rise up and they say, hey, let, let's do it. Let's build the wall. And, and in Nehemiah chapter 2 that we just read said they strengthened themselves to build the wall. Now, after that speech, the same two politicians come to him and they say, what do you think you're doing? Sounds like you're rebelling against the king here, trying to establish this kingdom here in Jerusalem. What are you doing? And so Nehemiah is facing oppression and opposition every step of the way. So what happens is Nehemiah chapter 3 shows you the breakdown of all the different groups some of them just turn around, walk outside of their house, and they just start building the section of the wall right in front of them. Now, I do need to make a little bit of a disclaimer here because more than likely, this was not the entirety of the, of the original wall around Jerusalem that was uh, multiple kilometers long. It was probably some shortcuts because can, can we face it? Sometimes you just got to get the wall up. Amen. Now I know this is going to drive any perfectionists in the room. Any, any, anybody in the type where like somebody says, God just did a miracle. And you're like, I mean, it was okay. It wasn't perfect. And I could see a little, a couple things he could have done better. Yeah. You won't like this story. <laughs> you won't like this at all. So there were some areas where they, where they didn't take, they didn't build on top of the traditional wall. They just like, hey, we got to, this work has to get done. So they weren't skilled masons. They, 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 were, they were taking rubble and they were stacking it up. Some of, some, most of the wall was two and a half meters thick. It was, a, it was a giant, tall wall around the city. So they were putting their hands to the work. You know what I found out? Even the preachers were working. That's, that's when you know the hand of God is, um, is on the thing, when the preachers are out there. You know, it's serious. I wonder why it took so long for somebody to think about organizing people to rebuild the wall. In our last two conversations, anybody think about that? Why did it take Nehemiah in the citadel of Susa, in in the capital of Persia, standing beside the Persian king Artaxerxes, why did it take him hearing a report from Jerusalem and, and weeping and fasting and praying? Why did it take him to ride a horse 800 and some miles? Why did it take him to see it? Why couldn't somebody in Jerusalem have just risen up and said, hey, this is ridiculous that we would live in these circumstances. There's an opportunity here for God to do something and we need to get together and make sure. Doesn't it strike you that somebody from so far away has to come to affect change? And I think, I think I may know the reason why. The most of the time when we talk about miracles, most of the time when we as 
in, in our culture talk about miracles. They're typically, I would venture to say, our prayers about miracles are typically prayers concerning ourselves. I'll get two amens. I'll keep working. It's typically we're praying, God, provide for me. God, heal me. God, God, fix my kids. <laughs> fix my husband. You don't even care about anybody else's husband. He said, I don't have time to pray for anybody else's husband. I got enough prayer for mine alone. Fix my wife, fix my job, fix my thing, fix this, fix that, fix this. And what happens is when you get that mentality that God is typically there just to fulfill your needs. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem? You're walking around with your head down all the time. You're walking around, the walls are torn down, you got nothing to look forward to. You're always worried about being in danger. You're always worried about not having enough. Always worried about what other country is going to invade. And you're being run by outsiders and you're just like, well, it's as good as it's going to get. Of all places on the planet, the church in America should never have that mentality. Because God has afforded us more resources, more knowledge, more, more resources biblically, more resources tangibly, more resources financially than any other place on the planet. There's a lot of places I travel, you just can't. There's not even a mechanism. They don't, they don't have a phone. They don't have a, a computer to just get on and Google something about Jesus, which I don't always recommend doing. There's, there's a lack of resources. But somehow Satan has, has tricked us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He's tricked us into being only concerned with our own well-being. He's tricked us into, be, into thinking the next miracle, the next miracle that God's going to do, he's going to do it for me. We're treating God like the lottery. The next winner is going to be me. I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. I've been praying God, God fixes me. I've been praying God fixes everything around me. I've been praying God fixes my boss. My boss, I've been praying he fixes my boss. Praying God fixes my salary. Maybe, maybe God needs to fix your spending, but that's a whole nother um, We'll get to that sermon. I'm not going to tell you when because you may not show up. (laughs) But we're typically self-absorbed in our prayer life. Come on, can we be honest? But when you look through scripture, most miracles were done for other people. When you look at the New Testament, when you look at after Jesus, after when the apostles go out, the apostles aren't just putting their arms around each other going, oh man, we're going to have a good prayer meeting today and all of us are going to get healed. No, God is working through them. Amen? Paul would be sick and not get healed and yet God still worked through him to help other people. He would do miracles for other people. So, so sometimes in our circumstances, we don't lift our heads up and look for a miracle because we're too busy consumed with hoping he does one for us. And, and we have this mentality in, in the American church. Let me say it this way. We have this mentality that if my life looks perfect, then other people will want to come to Christ. 
Isn't that ironic? If my life looks perfect, so then, so then naturally I need to pray that I would be the healthiest person around because if I'm healthier than everybody else, then people will know God's presence is with me. I, I need to pray that, 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 you know, I have a lot of money. Doesn't that sound logical? If I have a lot of money, then, 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 then everybody around me will know that the blessing of God is on my life. This is a good, these are good things, right? I mean, why wouldn't I? I'm not going to pray to be poor. Lord, help me be poor so that everybody will know you're good. But what we've done is we've bought into it as a, as a church, as a whole. We bought into this idea that if the church looks perfect, then people will come into it. And isn't that the craziest thing ever? If we're perfect, then all these imperfect people will want to hang out with us. And I don't know about you, but I know I'm not perfect. And the last thing I want to hang out with is somebody who thinks they are. I told the first service, um, even the way, like, I, I, love, I love all the people that do our lighting and all that stuff. And I know we have to have it for the, for the, for the video and, the, and, and all that stuff. But, but um, the, the, light, the light is the right temperature for my skin complexion. It's, I mean, it's, it's good. And yesterday, uh, me, me and the, um, the students from CTS, we went to Washington, D.C. I got a little sun on my face. And I was like, oh, the lighting is going to be good today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lighting is going to be just perfect. And, um, and it's going to look perfect. And, and, um, and then when people see it a lot, you, all of you see it a lot in Berkeley Springs. Isn't it good? It's not good. And, and guess what? Then, then everybody that watches it online will know that the presence of, surely the presence of God is in this place. Some of you know that's an old hymn. Um, the issue is this. The issue is this. God consistently moved through imperfect people all the way through Scripture. He'd use a prostitute. He'd use a killer. He'd use people that the church would throw out because their skin complexion didn't look the greatest in the light. He would use people that nobody else would ever dream about using. Not because they were perfect, but because they were willing. So we started out by saying, the first thing the church should do is say yes, a lot. Not because we're perfect, not because we have it all together, not because everything matches, not because, not because the light's perfect, not because your circumstance, not because you make enough money, not because you're the healthiest person in the planet, not because of any of that. No, because there's an opportunity in front of you. So that changes everything. So what that tells me is the people in Jerusalem were so down in their circumstances that nobody could look, look up and see the opportunity. Nobody could look up and go, hey, there's a decent amount of us here. We could look, we could probably, with God's help, we could pull this off. So I don't know where you are this morning, but we just sang a song said what the enemy meant for evil. Do we remember what it said? God will turn it into good. You know what that does for me? First of all, first of all, I told the first, like, 
I'm going to shorten your prayers just a little bit because I don't pray about things that God already told me were going to happen. I remember when my kids were growing up, they used to say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I told you when we were going to get there. You keep asking me, I'm going to go slower. (laughs) Are we there yet? Are we there? Where are we going? I told you already where we're going. And no, we're not there yet. Is the car stopped? The car hasn't even stopped yet. Does it even make logical sense that we'll be there if we're still driving? I know you're two, but come on. Every other body's, everybody else's kids are already doing this. Listen to me. If God said he would take the circumstance that you are deeming as evil right now, it may be an attack of the enemy, but that you've, that you've determined this is negative, this is evil, this is not good in my life. If he's already promised you that he will turn it for good, Romans eight twenty eight, he will cause all things to work for good. Amen? If he's already said that, then stop then stop the incessant praying of trying to figure out whether he's going to work it out and pick up your head and look for the opportunities while he is working it out. Because the church has to realize it's never going to be perfect down here. That was never the design. Because there was never supposed to be heaven on earth. I know we're in West Virginia and that's confusing. It was never supposed to be heaven on earth. You were never supposed to not get sick after sin. I'm just letting, I know I'm busting up some of your theology because you're like, well, well, no, no, no. There is an end to this life and I'm glad about it. Because if there's an end to this life, it means he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he, if he hadn't done so, he would have told us. But he went to prepare a place. And Paul described it as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered the heart of man. So he's prepared a place we should be anxious for. So when we, when we think about our circumstances, we have to think, okay, wait a second. He said, whatever comes into my life that was meant for evil, he can manipulate it and work it out by his will to turn it into good. So I don't actually have to worry about that. I can lift up my eyes now and see an opportunity to minister to someone else. That's the confidence that the church has. That's the confidence that we have. Somebody says, oh, are you doing all right? Not really, but it's not about me. I can help other people in the middle of all this mess because he said he'd work it out. So Nehemiah goes into Jerusalem and comes up with a profound idea because nobody else in the city's thinking about it. What's the first thing he tells him? You should have seen the hand of God, the hand of God on me just to get here. I already know a miracle's in store because he got me here. Some of you have testimonies of where he's already brought you. But you've forgotten about it because of your current circumstance. Nehemiah, the first thing he tells him, the hand of God has been on my life from day one. I stood beside the king and I showed up one day sad because of something I heard about this place and God orchestrated the whole thing for me able to have an opportunity to look at the king and say, hey, if it, if it would suit you, send me. Now, some of the issue is that there's a whole lot of people in here that don't think you're capable because your circumstance is not perfect. You think you need to get, 
you think you need, well, this thing needs to get better and this thing needs to get better. And when, the, when all, everything lines up, when everything gets okay and, and when I've got a grasp on everything and I'm making enough money and, and everything's going well and I got the car I want and I got the job and I got the da da da, da and then I'll do this thing. Can I, can I tell you, God is never waiting on you to get ready. The opportunity is, there, is just there when it's there. The idea is not if you're ready, it's if you're willing. It's if you're willing. I don't read anywhere where Nehemiah took wall building classes before he left. Look, I'm, a, I'm like a sophomore in the wall building school, and I'm not sure I'm capable yet, Lord. I don't know about this whole thing with wall building yet. I mean, I'm, I'm in the beginning stages of it. There's nowhere in the description of Nehemiah where it says he was a capable wall builder. He was just willing. If we picked up our faces from our circumstances and looked up and simply repeated the words to God, I'm willing, you have no idea what he'll do with you. You have no idea where he'll take you. You might say, I don't have enough education. God, I pray that you read more, but that's not a prerequisite. I never forget the fact that my first stint in college, I drank my way out of it and dropped out of a speech class because I was afraid. I don't even think I dropped out. I think it was too late to drop out. I just quit and got an F. Because I went, they want me to stand up in front of people and talk. (laughs) Who does that? I'm not doing that. I'll never do that. That's crazy. Why would you take a speech class? It was a prerequisite to get a degree. And I'm like, I don't even need a degree. I'm not doing any of this. I'm quitting because of a speech class. And then at some point in time in my life, around 21 years old, 22 years old, I just went, Lord, you, you know my history with this. But now I'm willing. I'm at least willing. I'm at least willing. I don't even know if I'm able, but I'm at least willing. Stop examining your current capabilities. Because when God does miracles through people, it's never it's never really based on their current capability because then the testimony at the end would be all messed up. It would be about their capability, not about God. So God uses people, God uses people that aren't capable. They're just willing, but we have to get ourselves in a position where we're, where we're looking for it, where we've stopped focusing so much on ourselves and we lift our heads up and we say, Lord, there's suffering, there's injustice, there's all these things going on. You can use me. You can use me to do that. I'm willing to go. If it pleases you, Lord, send me. Send me. I'm not saying you got to fly to another country. Send me to the office this morning, Lord. Send me to the job site this morning. I'm going to stop complaining about my circumstance and I'm going to look up for the miracle that you want to do in my, in my employment, in my marriage. Stop, stop just focusing on how, how difficult it is. Look up, Lord, is there a miracle to happen through us? It doesn't need to be a scene. 
You don't need to drag everybody in your office into the middle and do a prayer meeting. Please don't do that. It's going to be weird and unproductive for the company. Here's the secret to it. Do whatever you can today. Today. You know, I like chapter three because there's almost no spirituality in chapter three whatsoever. It's just a list. I mean, it's just, there is one indication that in one area, some elders would not help. Some preachers wouldn't help in one area. Shocking. Um, They kind of felt like it was below them to get out on the wall and work. But the whole of chapter three is just a list of this person was the son of this person who's the son of this person and they built this part of the wall. And then this group built this part of the wall. And then this person who's the son of this person built this part of the wall. And then these people, this family built this part of the wall and this family built this part of the wall. The whole, whole of chapter three is these are who built, when they built, they just kept building and building and building and building and building and building. Just, just start. Just start. Walk out the door and start building. There's nothing there's nothing crazy about that philosophy, is there? Just walk out of the door in the morning and, and go to work. Go to work. You don't have to pray for another job. You don't have to. Do, no, the miracle is just you getting up and starting whatever it is that God wants you to do. And so they just got up and started working. There's over 50 people and groups that built the wall. The beautiful thing about it, there was no single family that could, could have rebuilt the whole thing. There wasn't one super talented person that got the whole thing done. It was the whole place. And you know what else? I know this goes against all modern leadership training, but there was no five-year plan. Nehemiah did not show up to the people and go, hey, I mean, I rode around the city wall and I've got a spreadsheet now that I'm going to send to everybody. And, and we just, I think it could be handled in about 90 days if we all work pretty hard. And, and, um, and here's the way I want this whole thing to go. He didn't have a five, he didn't have a six months plan. He didn't have, he didn't have a, didn't have a plan. And you do understand that God typically doesn't give you a, a five-year plan. He doesn't, he didn't give you, he gives me like 45 second plans. But here's what I know. It says he will direct the steps of a righteous man. Doesn't the Bible say that? So let me me give you a little insight about how this works. If you stop fretting so much about the future and just trust him to keep directing your steps, you'll have more opportunity to look for miracles. You'll have more opportunity to look for opportunities because you won't be so concerned about what's going to happen because he promises you to direct you. So now I can focus on him and not so much about what's going to happen. So there was no five-year plan. There was no genius 10-year plan that pulled this off. There wasn't a, there wasn't a committee sitting down and putting a plan together, which, oh, God hates committees. Wow. God hates committees. You can write that down. That is a formula. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Get up in the morning and do it like Jesus stand beside you. This is the reason, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So Solomon is not saying you're going to hell. He's saying we're all going to die one day. 
And guess what happens when we die? There's not work. There's no more opportunity for it. So we can't, we can't waste away all the opportunity God gives us because we're so concerned on ourselves, so concerned about our, about our safety, so concerned about this, so concerned about that. Lord, if you make this right, then I might do this. If you do this, I might do that. No, no, no. He says, you only get so many opportunities. We're all going this way. There's nobody that gets to escape it. Often tell people, everybody that Jesus raised from the dead died again. It's a consequence of miracles. <laughs> it just happens. We're all going to die. So, so the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, hey, listen, pay attention while you, have to, while you have time, while you have breath. Do it now. Do it now. Look at your neighbor and say, go ahead and start it now. Start it now. Start out. Just, just get rid of all excuses. Just get rid of all the, all the, all the, oh, I'm not ready. And it's about me. And it's about me. And it's about me. And it's about us. No, no, just get rid of all that. Just look at your neighbor and say, start it now. Do what you can now. Say yes now. So this is my favorite part of the story. Stand to your feet. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter six. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month's of the month of Elu in 52 days. Look at your neighbor and say record for wall building right there. Record for wall building 52 days. That's a record. I know some of you can't get the house clean in 52 days. Some of you can't get the, can't get the walls painted in 52 days. Nehemiah is rebuilding a wall around the whole city in 52 days. Some of you got the same honeydew list you had when you got married at the beginning. Been married 25 years. Nope, still ain't fixed that window. He ain't fixed it. 52 days. 52 days. Now listen. Verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nation around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. My prayer as a pastor is that our community would say, I know this is going to sound weird, but my prayer as a pastor is our community would say, those people aren't, aren't talented enough to pull that off. Think about it. Think about it. Those people aren't talented enough to pull that off. It had to be God. That was a testimony. All the nations around Jerusalem are looking around going, there's no way those people could have pulled that off. There's no way. We've been living around them for centuries. They're not that good. So I want to be good, but I don't want to be good enough to make it look like that I could just pull it off. Amen? I want people around me to say, he's not that good. There ain't no chance that was all Chris. There ain't no chance he could pull something like that off. So I'm constantly looking, God, what can you do in through me that's beyond my capability? I can't pull it off. So I'm going to tell you a really quick story. When we built this church, we finished it in 2019. I had never run a construction project this big, never. There was no qualification for me to do this. I don't even know why people volunteered. It's a big construction site. There was once, there was one Saturday morning that me and three other contractors, good friends of mine, we all showed up one Saturday morning, eight o'clock. We were showing up every week for six and a half months. 
We showed up one Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. I had two herniated discs in my neck. One guy had fallen off a lift and busted his leg and his wrist. Another guy had a broken back. And another guy fell down a set of steps and broke his hip. We walked in. I said, buddy, I said, listen, fellas, if they're waiting on us to build this church, it's probably not going to happen. Like, how are we going to pull this off? We ended up moving in a week ahead of schedule. It ended up costing less. We ended up financing less. And I could hear the whole community say, they're not that good. They're not that good. I don't know how they pulled it off. I can I hear other pastors say, how in the world did you pull that off? And every time I'd say, this is a miracle, man. I don't know. God just came in. God did stuff that we didn't, we couldn't have, we couldn't have done it. There's no way we were that good. That's the testimony of the church. But God. If it wasn't for him, if it wasn't through him, if it wasn't by him, we are not good enough to make it happen. But because we will stand up and do what we can, when we can, and we'll be available and willing, he'll do the miracle through you every time. Every single time he'll use you. So that is where we are as a church. The world is begging the church to stand up and go to work. The world is begging the church to trust God. They're begging us to step into suffering and do something about it. Not because we're capable, because we're willing and he's able. Amen. Come on, can you lift your voice this morning? Can you lift your voice to him? Can you proclaim? Can you ask him today to send you? Can you ask him to use you? Maybe it's something little tomorrow.